Welcome to Reaching Your Peak, an educational storytelling mini-series of the Elk Talk podcast. This is Corey Jacobson, and today I'm going to be sharing a story from one of my previous do-it-yourself public land elk hunts, and then breaking down a strategy or a tactic that was instrumental in the success of that hunt. Reaching Your Peak is brought to you by Peak Refuel. If you're looking for delicious freeze-dried meals that are made with 100% real ingredients, including premium USDA meats, you've probably already heard of Peak Refuel. Their meals have nearly twice as much protein as the competition, which is important for fueling your body in the backcountry. There's no fillers, no empty calories, just premium nutrition that truly meets the needs of elk hunters. And the taste is second to none. My personal favorites are their homestyle chicken and rice and the beef stroganoff, but they have a huge selection of other incredible meals like chicken alfredo, biscuits and gravy, chicken coconut curry, sweet pork and rice, mountain berry granola, and a whole lot more. If you want to taste the difference, visit peakrefuel.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 15% and get free shipping on your next order. Welcome back to another episode of Reaching Your Peak. I apologize uh, a couple days late this week. I ended up having LASIK surgery last week and uh, got a couple days behind here, but my vision is uh, already markedly improved from what it was and I'm excited that I can see my pins on my bow and the target out there at 60 yards now so uh, really excited about the new vision that I have. Uh, If any of you are going to be in the Utah area this coming weekend the total archery challenge is at I think it's at Brighton Resort and Randy and I are going to be there, so be sure and track us down and say hi. We'd love to meet you or see you and shake hands and chat elk. We're also going to be doing a live Q&A at the Total Archery Challenge after party on Saturday evening. I think it starts at 5.30 or 6, and that's presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So hopefully we'll see a few of you there. And just as a reminder, if you're liking these podcasts, be sure and go to the Elk Talk Podcast webpage at elktalkpodcast.com and leave us a comment there. You can just click on the contact tab at the top of the page and then fill out the form and that'll send us your comments or questions. For now, let's jump into another elk hunting story. Back in 2002, my good friends David Burdett and Ralph Albright convinced me that I needed to start applying for an elk tag with them in Arizona. Ralph already had 1.4 elk in Arizona, so Burdett and I started accumulating points that year and expected it would take us several years before we actually drew a tag together. But due to a lawsuit that was filed against the state of Arizona by U.S. outfitters just three years later, the Arizona Game and Fish Department was forced to issue extra non-resident elk tags after the initial draw was completed to ensure that non-residents were given an equal amount of elk tags as the residents. And due to that issuing of those extra tags in 2005, 
the three of us drew our tree elk tags in the unit we'd been applying for as our first choice. Back in 2005, the draw results in Arizona didn't come out until July, which only left us about eight weeks to put together a game plan for this incredible hunt. E-scouting hadn't even been developed yet. No one was using Google Earth to scout. And since this was my first out-of-state elk hunt ever, I really had no idea of what to expect or where to start. The eight weeks between finding out we had drawn and the opener of elk season flew by that summer. And the next thing I knew, it was September, and I was in my truck driving from Idaho to Arizona, dreaming about all the monster bull elk we were going to see. The only source of information I had with me was a paper map that I had highlighted with yellow highlighter where I had identified several potential areas throughout the unit where I thought we might be able to find elk. Fortunately, the central location within the unit that we had chosen for a campsite turned out to be in the center of all the elk as well. And from that first evening in camp, we had multiple bulls bugling all around us in just about every direction. And this was completely foreign to me. It truly was elk heaven. And we had drawn the tag with just three points. In the weeks leading up to the hunt, I knew that this was going to be the best elk hunt I had ever been on. I knew there were several big bulls in the unit and that this would be my one chance to actually shoot a trophy type elk. I didn't want to get greedy and hold out for a 400 inch bull, but I also didn't want to waste this opportunity on a bull that I could shoot with my normal over-the-counter elk hunts in Idaho. So I set a goal for myself not to shoot anything unless it was 350 inches or bigger. I was going to hold out until I found a bull over 350. I did recognize going into the hunt that in order for us to fill three tags, we'd need to work hard and we'd need to work together. So I decided I would call for Ralph and Burdette first and help them get their elk. And then I'd utilize whatever was left of the season to just focus on finding that 350 inch bull for myself. On the first morning of the hunt, I quickly learned just how different hunting elk in Arizona was compared to hunting elk in Idaho. I think we probably bumped the first four or five bulls that we got bugling on that first morning. Our normal process had always been to locate a bull with bugles and then move in on him to set up, but in Arizona, it didn't work out quite like it had in Idaho. We were used to having to get close to bulls before we could set up and call them in, but in Arizona, the bulls seemed to just come running in as soon as you called to them. So We'd get a bull to bugle and start to move in to get 100 yards or so closer to the bull. And then all of a sudden we'd look up and see that the bull was running in straight to us. And we ended up bumping them several times before we realized we probably didn't have to be so aggressive. From then on, as soon as we'd get an answer, we'd just find a good spot to set up right there and call the bull into that initial spot. And that strategy seemed to work a lot better after that first morning. And that's exactly what we were doing on the morning of day two. We were driving along on a gravel road and noticed that there was a really good looking knob on the right side of the road. And there was a really nice north facing heavily timbered slope that ran down off the knob all the way down to the road. So we pulled over and got out of the truck and waited a couple minutes and then let out a bugle. And almost immediately, two different bulls answered from up there on that north face. So 
Burdett and Ralph real quickly grabbed their bows and we scrambled up the hill to find an opening where we could get set up. The more mature sounding of the two bulls was bugling from up the hillside to our left and the other bull, which wasn't bugling as frequently or as aggressively, was above us and just slightly to our right. Burdett moved off 50 or 60 yards to set up on the bull on the left and Ralph set up just probably 10 yards or so in front of me hoping he'd be in a good position if the bull on the right came down the hill and came into our setup. Both of the bulls were clearly working their way down the hillside toward us, but the bigger sounding bull on the left was definitely holding our attention and we were so focused on him that even when the smaller bull sounded off right in front of us, we really didn't pay much attention until that bull stepped out. The smaller bull walked out of the timber right above where Ralph and I were set up and he hit the opening that we were set up in and started walking straight down at us. I was running a video camera on a tripod and as I was panning the video camera following the elk, all of a sudden Ralph showed up on the screen of the video camera as well. The bull was probably just 15 yards in front of me which put him at about 7 or 8 yards from Ralph. It wasn't a big bull, just an average 6x6, six six, so I was completely surprised when I heard Ralph's bow go off. And I can still see Ralph's reaction so clearly as he immediately turned to me after the shot and kind of shrugged his shoulders like he was saying, I'm not sure if that was a bull I should have shot. Now Ralph's killed a lot of elk, and he'd killed a lot of elk up to that point, and he was far from a trophy hunter, but I could tell there was definitely some disappointment as we walked up on his bull. It was a a beautiful six-point bull and Ralph hadn't set any expectations or anything for what he wanted to shoot on this hunt but I think he knew that for day two he'd probably jump the trigger a little bit but for those of us who have hunted mostly general over-the-counter type tags we usually don't get multiple opportunities so it can be difficult to hold out or to pass up a nice bull. The next morning, Ralph needed to take his elk meat into the nearest town to get it out of the heat and get it hanging in a cooler, so Burdett and I decided to just hunt right from camp. We could hear bulls bugling up the ridge above camp as we are getting ready that morning, and as soon as we started hiking up towards the main ridge, the bugling action just intensified. Burdett had his bow, and I had my bugle tube and the video camera again, and we were hustling as quickly as we could up the ridge, hoping we'd be able to cut off that main herd as they were making their way from the meadows down by our camp back up the mountain to where they bedded. Unfortunately, the elk made it back up to the main ridge just ahead of us, and that main group where all of the chaos was stemming from ended up about 150 yards or so in front of us, and they kept moving pretty quickly away from us up the ridge. We were doing our best to try to keep up and continuing to call, hoping that one of the bulls would come back, but we could tell the distance between us and the flurry of bugling action up ahead of us just kept getting farther and farther apart. Then just as we were starting to lose hope that we would have a close encounter, off to our left we heard another bull bugle, probably just 200 or 250 yards away. It sounded like another bull was probably coming up toward the main ridge from a different direction, so we scrambled his way, hoping that we could get in front of him as he moved to catch up with the main herd up on the main ridge. Once again, though, we came up a little short, and the bull made it past us and was moving up the hill away from us, heading in the direction where the main herd had been heading to. We could hear the bull panting and growling, 
as he made his way up the hillside in front of us, but Burdett decided to move ahead and get set up anyway, and I stayed back to call, hoping we might have at least a slim chance of being able to turn the bull around and get him to come back in to the calls. Once Burdett disappeared into the timber in front of me to get set up, I let out a bugle, and the bull fired right back with a super aggressive bugle, and I could hear him glunking as he turned around and started crashing down the hillside back in towards us. I'm still not sure what buttons I pushed to get that immediate reaction out of that bull, but he was coming in like he meant business. I caught a glimpse of the bull as he moved through the thick timber right in front of Burdett, and then I heard Burdett's bow go off, followed by that solid thump that you hear when an arrow connects with body cavity. A few seconds later, and a smiling Burdett stepped out from behind the trees he was set up in with his arms raised up in a signal of success. His big herd bull only made it probably 80 or 100 yards after the shot and we'd later score his bull at around 345 inches. It was a beautiful bull that was absolutely representative of the type of bulls that we felt we should be able to find on this hunt. And here we were, the morning of day three, with two of our three elk tags filled, and the next eight or nine days still available just for me to look for a bull that would surpass that 350-inch minimum that I'd set for myself. We got Burdett's bull packed back down to camp just as Ralph was pulling back in from dropping his meat off at the cooler. So we loaded Burdett's game bags into the truck and turned around and made the drive back into town to drop off that second elk. Deep down inside on that drive, I was almost giddy just thinking about how I had that entire week still ahead of us and I was the only one left with a tag. And I knew that I'd shoot any bull that came in that was over 350 inches, but I did start thinking that possibly there might be another opportunity to hold out and maybe shoot something even bigger. The next evening, we decided to hunt on the other side of the unit, which was several miles away from our camp, and around the base of a big mountain that I'd found on the map that I had highlighted. And there were huge meadows all around the base of the mountain. And those meadows were completely surrounded by thick timber and groves of aspens on all sides of the meadows, which made perfect habitat for the elk to retreat to after spending the night down in the meadows feeding and rutting. We decided that evening to just slip out to the edge of one of the meadows and do some calling and glassing until dark, just hoping we'd see elk and be able to watch them as they filtered out into the meadows and then have a good idea of where we wanted to start the next morning. We had a couple hours still before dark and as we got set up there on the edge of the meadows we could hear bugles up on the mountain and before too long there were more and more bugles as the elk started making their way down the mountain toward the meadows and pretty soon elk started popping out literally in every corner of the meadow that we were set up on, including one really huge bull that had just really wide sweeping antlers. And I knew from even probably three quarters of a mile away that he had to be well over that 350 inch mark. As more and more elk came out into the meadows, I started calling and I could hear another bull up in the timber across the meadow from us that was answering my bugles. And just a few minutes later, that bull popped out on the meadow straight across from us, probably 400 yards away. And I took just one quick glance through my binoculars, and I could tell that he was massive 
and he was tall. His fourth points seemed like they were every bit of two feet tall, and they formed huge whale tails on the back end of his massive beams. This was the kind of bull I was looking for. And here he was, coming right across the meadow, straight at us. As the bull got closer, all I could see were his giant sword points and the polished white tips that just reached up to the sky. And it was a scene straight out of an elk hunter's dream. It was what I had dreamed about when I thought about this hunt. And the bull kept coming. I ranged him at 60 yards, and I already knew he was the bull I'd come to Arizona to shoot. So when he stopped at 45 yards in front of me broadside, I was already at full draw and let my arrow fly. I can still remember the excitement I had right after that shot. I remember I was laying there in the grass next to my bow at the edge of the meadow and Burdett and Ralph were standing there and I said, if that bull isn't 350 inches, he isn't an inch. It was just an incredible evening and I was on cloud nine. The elk, you know, they're still bugling all around that meadow and here we were the evening of day four and we were done. I couldn't hardly stand to wait that usual wait time after the shot. I just wanted to walk up and get my hands on the antlers of that giant Arizona bull. Somehow I managed to give the bull the necessary time after the shot and I was just brimming with anticipation as we started tracking the bull. He went back into the timber uh, straight across the meadow from where he had initially come out. I'd hit him just a little bit back and a little low so the blood trail wasn't overly easy to follow, but Burdett got on the right line and after just a few minutes, whistled to us and then hollered that he'd found the bull. It was all I could do at that point, not to just sprint through the trees over to where Burdett had hollered from. But as I approached and got my first good look at the bull laying there on the ground, my heart sank. I immediately got just a sick feeling in my stomach. There's no way that that was the bull that I'd shot. The bull I shot was way bigger. He had to be way bigger. We must have found a bull that someone else had shot and lost. But as I stood there staring at the antlers, still kind of in shock and disbelief, it was hard to deny that those fourths on this bull were the same fourths that I had admired as he was walking across the meadow before I shot. How had I misjudged this bull so badly? And how had he shrunk so much between the time I shot him and when we walked up on him? His fourth points were nice, but his first three points on each side were barely as long as my stabilizer. And my stabilizer was only six or seven inches long. That made his fourths look even bigger than they really were. And it also made his beams look even more massive than they were. I'd been fooled. And in a big way, this bull would barely score over 300 inches, and I still had six more days that I could have used to hunt for a bigger bull. I kept asking myself, what did I do? I'd never felt disappointment when I walked up on an elk, ever. Even with little raghorn bulls that I had shot in Idaho in the past, I'd never felt any measure of regret, but i just wasted an incredible elk tag, and I'd fallen well short of that 350-inch goal that I'd set for myself. All of the time that I'd spent leading up to the hunt, uh, learning to field judge elk, was in vain, and I just felt like I'd failed. I mustered up some half-hearted smiles for pictures, but I know Burdett and Ralph could tell I was disappointed, even though I was trying really hard not to let it show. 
So we packed up camp that next day and started the drive home. And it was a long drive home, a lot longer than the drive to get there. And that long drive was miserable. I just stared out the window and kept thinking about what could have been. And the season's still open at this point. I still had almost a week of season left, but I had shot a bull and filled my tag. But I kept asking myself, why did I shoot that bull? He looked so big coming in and he had some cool features, but he was so far from what I'd said I wanted to shoot. But I had shot him and now I had to live with it. It took months after that hunt for the sharp pain of my failure to ease up somewhat. And I finally started to be able to internalize what it was that I'd been feeling. This was my first out-of-state hunt, my first real adventure beyond the normal over-the-counter archery hunts in Idaho that I'd cut my teeth on. My first real opportunity to shoot a true trophy bull and my only realistic opportunity to probably ever shoot a 350-inch bull. And I'd wasted it. I was disappointed. And the fact that my bull didn't meet that minimum score that I'd told myself I was going to hold out for was really casting a dark shadow on the entire experience that I had had there in Arizona. And I think that's when the real guilt started setting in. My disappointment in the bull that I'd shot was quickly replaced with disappointment myself and how I was letting myself feel about that hunt. We'd experienced the most insane elk threat I had ever imagined. We'd called in and seen more bulls in four days of hunting than I ever seen in an entire season of hunting in Idaho. We'd filled three tags with six-point bulls in four days, and I'd gotten to experience all of that with two of my best friends who I looked up to and who I cherished spending time with in the elk woods. I swore right then at that point that no hunt I ever went on again would be about score. If I saw a bull that got me excited and that I wanted to shoot, I would shoot it, and I'd be just as excited as if it was a new world record, even if it was just a raghorn. I knew that for me, I needed to learn to manage my expectations, and even more importantly, learn to appreciate the entire experience of the hunt, not just the success that we worked so hard to achieve, or the size of the antlers that are attached to that end result. If I was ever lucky enough to draw another elk tag in Arizona or anywhere else that had big bulls, I'd never set my goals for that hunt based on a score. That mentality had only robbed me of an otherwise once-in-a-lifetime experience, and I'd honestly allowed it to ruin pretty much that entire hunting experience for me. I said never again, and fortunately, I'd only have to wait three years to apply my new outlook on my next out-of-state hunt. When it comes to elk hunting success, confidence is critical. And confidence in my gear and my equipment is something I'm just not willing to compromise. And that's why I shoot a Prime bow. As a mechanical engineer, when I first saw the technology Prime was designing into their bows, I was intrigued. Cam lean had always been an issue on other bows I'd shot, which made tuning the bows and ultimately getting consistent arrow flight nearly impossible. But four shots into my first prime bow, it was tuned and my arrows were flying perfectly. The draw cycle was smooth and the back wall was solid and they didn't stop there. In the years since I've started shooting a prime bow, they've added center shot technology, which allows the bow to lock on the target and keeps my pins from wandering around. 
They've also recently designed a new cam that completely eliminates cam lean that was previously caused by the offset cable design. Prime bows are continually leading the way when it comes to new technology and technology that makes a difference, not just some marketing gimmick that a marketing department can use to advertise a new model. There's no doubt that the stability of my Prime bow has improved my accuracy, extended my range, and increased my confidence. To learn more about Prime Stability or to shoot one for yourself, visit your local bow shop or go to g5prime.com. And now, back to reaching your peak. Less than three years after my first experience of hunting elk in Arizona, I found myself once again staring in disbelief at the contents of an envelope that had just arrived in my mailbox from the Arizona Game and Fish Department. It was a letter of success, and it was accompanied by an elk tag for the unit that I'd applied for as my first choice hunt. I was going back to Arizona to hunt monster bulls, but this time I knew better than to assign any expectations to the hunt. The tag I'd drawn was in a different unit than what I had drawn back in 2005, but I knew the potential for finding mature bulls was definitely there. This time though, I decided that if I saw a bull that got me excited, I was going to shoot it and not worry at all about what it would score. I planned to hold out for a mature bull for sure, but unlike that previous trip, if I came home empty-handed, I was already at peace with that possibility. There was no pressure at all on me this time. I was excited just for the opportunity and the experience that I knew I could have and being able to share the hunt with good friends again. I was going to hunt hard, no doubt, but I wasn't going to hunt desperate. And that's exactly what we did. Burdett and another good friend of ours, Dave Perry, came along on the hunt for the first few days just to be able to experience the Arizona elk rut. And my current hunting partner, Donnie, took off the entire duration of the hunt from work to come down and run video camera and help me out on the hunt. For the first few days, we bounced around to several new areas and ended up seeing several elk and calling in several elk, but no bulls that made me just stop and think, wow. But even though we weren't seeing any real mature bulls at all, I was still having a blast and felt no pressure to have to find a giant bull or to even fill my tag. We called multiple bulls into bow range, including one little five by six that just about stepped on us as he came up the hillside looking for the sweet cow sounds that he had heard from down below. And then one night, just like that, it happened. We found a big bull, and this was the type of bull that dreams are made of. The first time we saw him, we actually called him in from probably 400 yards away. And as he moved behind a small tree at about 45 yards, I lifted my bow to draw it back and the bull just came to a stop. He knew that something wasn't right and before he stepped out to give me a clear shot, he just turned and trotted down the hill in the direction that he had come from. But I'd seen enough of him to know that I was going to put all my effort for the rest of that hunt into hunting that bull. And if I didn't shoot an elk by the end of the hunt, I really didn't care. Uh, there was no pressure. I was just having the time of my life. Burdett and Dave Perry had to leave the next day, but Donnie and I went back and we ended up getting right back on the same big bull again, only to have him go quiet and give us the slip. And then later that evening, 
we found him yet again and got within 100 yards of him and two cows that he had hooked up with sometime during the day before the cows spotted us and spooked. The bull continued bugling well after dark that night, and we were following along the best we could, trying to figure out where he was coming from and where he was going to each day. And finally, after about an hour there of following him in the dark, his bugle stopped moving, and we could tell that he was lingering for some reason in a specific area. So the next morning, we hiked into that area and ended up finding a big natural water hole that didn't show up on any of our maps and knew right then that's where the elk had been going to and that water hole was the reason they were going there. We were starting to connect the dots and while my sights were definitely set on that one particular bull, I still wasn't feeling any pressure like I had to kill him. I was loving the chess match that we were having with him each day and still in awe at that entire elk hunting experience. The next day we decided to hike into the water hole and just set up there and do some calling hoping that the big bull was nearby and that he would come in to our calls. He had a really distinguishable bugle and I knew that as vocal as he had been every time we'd gotten in on him that if he did head in our direction we would know it before he got there and we'd be able to adjust and get set up to hopefully get a shot. We didn't pick the best setup initially just because we hadn't seen any elk or heard any bugles yet and we ended up just setting up in a little clump of brush that was on the edge of the water hole and while we were sitting there I just started giving out a few soft bugles and some cow calls and after probably 30 minutes or so a bull bugled from up on the ridge to our left and then a few minutes later he bugled again this time quite a bit closer. He was definitely making his way down toward us and toward the water hole but I knew it wasn't the bull that we were waiting for, so I really didn't get too excited. And after another minute or so, I could start hearing hooves clicking on the rocks and looked up to see the bull that had been bugling walk out of the trees and start walking to the water hole. And my first reaction was, this looks like a young bull. He's somewhat spindly, not real wide, and there was something weird going on with a couple of his points, specifically his third points. They seemed to be just sticking straight out off the beam. But he wasn't the bull that I'd set my sights on, so I didn't even look at him through the binoculars, and I took my focus off him to continue scanning around the area, around the water hole, to see if there was anything else that was sneaking in or coming into the water hole. 20 or 30 seconds later, though, I could hear the bull slurping water 40 or 50 yards across the pond from me, and as I glanced over in his direction, I was caught completely off guard. The bull that was standing there was broadside to me now and didn't look anything at all like the bull that I just watched walk into the water hole. From the side, his beams were incredibly long and all of his tines were super long. He instantly made me think, wow. And from the front, I hadn't been at all impressed. But now that I had a, a side view, I knew he was a bull that I was absolutely okay shooting. The bull had no idea we were there, so I just quickly ranged him and drew back my bow and shot. And the bull turned and ran up the draw where he'd come from, and as he ran out of sight, I could hear his hooves again clicking on the rocks just before everything went silent. He definitely wasn't the same bull that I had devoted the past three days to hunting, but even knowing that, I didn't feel any disappointment at all. I liked what I had seen when he was standing there broadside, 
and I was so content with my decision to shoot, even without walking up to see how big he really was. If he would have been a 320 class bull, I would have been thrilled, even though the big bull we had been chasing was a lot bigger. In fact, they shot him in rifle season, and he ended up scoring, I think, 417 inches. So, an absolute giant bull. Now, I understand that when you shoot a big bull, it's really easy after the fact to say that score doesn't matter. But as I was tracking the bull, before I had even seen how big he really was, I was still ecstatic. There was no regret. There was no disappointment that I hadn't shot the big bull we'd been chasing. And I definitely, you know, wondered how big that bull really was. But I had experienced one of the most incredible hunts I had ever been on. We'd called in multiple bulls, and I'd seen an absolute bull of a lifetime and been close to getting a shot at him more than once. And now I just shot a bull that had captured my attention, and I couldn't have been more thrilled. As we walked up on the bull, something didn't seem right. One of his antlers was sticking up so far off the ground that I thought he had broken his antler when he fell, and it must have been caught in the tree that was next to where he was laying. But as we got closer, I realized that antler was attached to him and his antlers continued to grow. And I realized that the bull was a lot bigger than I had initially thought he was. But again, honestly, the size of the bull's antlers just added to the excitement that I was already feeling. And as I look back on that hunt, and I do think about it quite often, it was one of the most enjoyable hunting experiences I've ever had. The feeling of hunting for the experience of the hunt and just not worrying at all about the size of the bull at the end of the hunt seemed to magnify everything that was great about that experience. Thinking back on that first elk hunt in Arizona, I really don't remember a lot of details from the hunt. I was just so focused on finding a bull with a certain score and a certain outcome that I really missed out on what could have been another hunt of a lifetime experience. And I definitely smile when I see the picture of Burdette and Ralph and I holding the antlers from our three bulls, but I really struggle to recall many details from each of the days that we hunted there. But when I think of that next hunt in Arizona, I can vividly see the yellow flowers on the hillside where I shot the bull. I can hear the faint rattle of a coiled up rattlesnake I nearly stepped on as we were hiking out after a close call with that first big bull we'd been chasing. I can see water skippers and frogs that were creating ripples in one of the water holes that we had walked by. And I can still hear the echoes of bugles as I scan every hillside that's forever etched in the memories that I have of that hunt. So what made the difference? In my mind, it's pretty clear. It was my expectations and perspective. There's nothing at all wrong with setting a goal for what you want out of a hunt. In fact, I think it's important that we do so before the hunt. But I've learned that a hunt focused on a final score or even a final outcome is going to fall short of the experience that it could otherwise be. Fred Bear once said that a hunt based only on trophies taken falls far short of what the ultimate goal should be. And for him, he said that ultimate goal was time to commune with your inner soul as you share the outdoors with the birds, animals, and fish that live there. 
That was his goal. But your goal and my goal might be different. I've learned that for me, a hunt based on a score or an expectation of trophy size really does fall far short of what that hunt could be. And I remind myself frequently during a hunt that I just need to slow down and absorb some of those details that surround me every single time I'm lucky enough to be out there chasing elk. So until next time, I'll see you guys on the next ridge or mountaintop or wherever the elk are bugling.